Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is The Bunker, and my name is Nick Cohen. Huntington's disease was first identified by a young doctor in New England in the 1870s called George Huntington. Originally, he called it Huntington's Chorea because he noticed that patients had jerky, dancey movements, chorea, choreography, it's the same uh, route. Now it's not called Huntington's Chorea, it's called Huntington's disease because doctors and obviously patients have noticed that far more important than the, the jerkiness is the debilitating effects on the brain. Uh, the best way to describe it, it's not a good way to describe it, it's not totally accurate, nothing is, it's a bit like Alzheimer's in that uh, your mental function degenerates. Charlotte Raven has Huntington's and has written Patient One, Forgetting and Finding Myself, about discovering Huntington's ran in the family. It's a genetic disorder and living with it. It is a, it's a devastating little book, uh, very, very honest. And I say this as someone who's known Charlotte for, for, for donkey's years. Charlotte, uh, welcome. When, when did you first realise, when did this disease first come into your consciousness? Well, it, there was a period when it never came into my consciousness because everyone in my family just kind of insulated us from that brutal reality that was about to become very true. Because your father... Yeah. Has Huntington's disease, but no point did he mention to his children that there was a 50% chance that they would have the, the, the gene that would. Uh, we uh, didn't even know that my grandmother died of it. Oh, God. And so there was these uh, silent years when I just never thought to answer, ask my dad. Why didn't I know anything about my grandmother? I was so preoccupied with my own life and story. Yeah. It just didn't occur to me to think, why hasn't anyone mentioned this bloody woman ever? Well, it's not something... I was too preoccupied. Well, no, you can sort of blame yourself. It's not something most people ask, why did my well, grandmother die? Or why wasn't she ever in my life? Or oh, why I see, yeah. Her? So she just... You know, whole story of being sort of erased. I remember meeting your father. I really liked him. I mean, he was a very outgoing, uh, friendly, 
Yeah. Warm man. Do, do you think uh, it's a false philosophers have? Do you think he just didn't want to to face up to it? Yeah, I think so. I think my ex-husband was furious when he found out that my dad had been first diagnosed and was Tom was angry with him. Tom, your, your ex-husband, yeah. Yeah, so, but not realising that we should have known that information so that we can make decisions. Yeah, of course. You describe in the book your father telling you, but even then when your father tells you that he has Huntington's, it's sort of, oh, don't worry about it too much. If you get it, it'll be very late in life. He did, uh, and then a few years later, he ended up, in an awful... It was late in life that he got it. He had late onset. But the idea that it was less punishing for being late onset wasn't true. He ended up mentally distorted in a care So, Charlotte, when you, you find out your father has this, this, this disease you've... Well, I mean, why would you? You've given no thought to at all in your life. What do you do? I just stupidly went on Wikipedia and Google Huntington. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is just a really bad idea. Tom wasn't there because he was filming. Right. Filming the tube crash as it was unfolding. So it was 7-7. Seven, seven. So the 2005 bombings on yeah. the London transport system. Yeah. So he's off filming yeah. Apocalypse in London. I and you're having to Google... Caught, caught up in it too. Yeah. I don't know because the phone goes dead. But yeah, everyone's... He caught up in it. But I'm there with Anna as a baby. And trying, Anna's your daughter. Yeah, yes. trying to find some bumping on wiki that would cheer me up, but nothing I read cheered me up. No. And quite the opposite. Because you find it's degenerative and there is no cure. And you can get it earlier in life. And I was 39 when he told me. Yeah. So you find out what it is, and this is something I found um, very, very interesting in the book. You then have to decide, do I take a test to discover whether I have the... Uh, sorry, before I go any further, I should have said it's very rude of me that we're also joined um, by Professor Ed Wilde from University College London, who is a great authority on Huntington's disease and has treated Charlotte. Um, Ed, it's actually... It's normal to get this in the disease to become evident in middle age. Yeah, I mean, it's usually most commonly in the 30s or 40s. Right. So sort of early, mid-adult life. And then Charlotte comes to... Does she come to your department or does she come to see you? Yeah, she was referred to our Huntington's disease clinic right. uh, in um, Bloomsbury. Yeah. And Charlotte, you have a bigger decision than I thought it would be, but that's perhaps a sign of my own prejudices in that, do I find out whether I've got this gene or not? And I would have thought you'd just want to do that, but there are good arguments against taking a genetic test. There are loads of kind of mental and emotional... I think 
what my dad used to do when he was making big decisions. He would make pros and cons. But the pros and cons list usually resulted in him doing what he had always wanted to do in the first place. <laughs> I did do that. Well, uh, I think emotionally and intellectually, I just feel like facing something head on is going to minimise its impact later. Yeah. Though knowing now meant that I wasn't going to spend the rest of my life wondering about it. And the cons are presumably... Why make yourself miserable? Yeah. Why live with the dread? But presumably, if you don't take the test, Ed, the dread is still with them. Right, that's the thing. It's a bit like an unopened credit card bill in a way. The The content of the envelope is already written. The yeah. only question is whether you open it and when. So it's really balancing living with the fear of Huntington's, but also the hope, the 50% chance that you might not have it, versus that then sort of condensing into a definite yes or a definite no. And obviously, a definite no is great, but a definite yes is pretty helpful news. Is Charlotte typical? Do most people think, I will take the test, like Charlotte did? Or do quite a lot of people say, I just want to? Quite surprisingly, most people choose not to. There's a genetic counselling process, and the, the main sort of lesson or the main mantra really that's that's repeated is you you can always test tomorrow if you're not certain that you want to test you can always test tomorrow and I think a lot of people agree with that and therefore choose to maybe test later or defer the decision so it's it's only about 15 percent I think in the UK that that um, that do get tested and it's much less in the US where of course if you have had a positive genetic test you'll never be able to get health affordable health care yeah yeah. My brother chose not to. Ed, do you advise people to take the test, or is it not your place to say it? Exactly. So um, the genetic counselling process is designed to be very, very neutral and basically to be an information-giving right. arrangement where you can have as many appointments as you like. Once you're certain that, it, that it's the right thing, then you can. it's easy to get tested. And we, we, we have people who go through that process very quickly and get tested within a couple of months of finding out. But um, in many cases, people will see a genetic counsellor for years and then may, may end up becoming symptomatic before they've actually decided whether to get the predictive genetic okay. test. Charlotte, you were an incredibly successful journalist and columnist. You were sort of, to use an awful cliche that you hope no one ever says about, you were very cutting edge, you were putting forward great pronouncements. You're very hard on your younger self, I thought, because it was my great pleasure to know you. I didn't think you were sort of narcissistic nightmare that you, that you that you somehow you somehow portray yourself in the book. But you were very you're very hard on your younger self. Implying sometimes you were too destructive, you didn't give enough thought to other people's feelings. Why do you think that? I think uh, when when I say that, I picture my my domestic scene, not my work. Not your journalism. Not not people you criticise in print. Although people I criticise in print, I do have to apologise for two. For, as well, because remember that thing where I said uh, all Liverpoolians were. Uh, oh yeah, so yeah, yeah. Remember, was this after the Jamie Bolton murder? Yes, it was right after the Jamie Bolton. Yeah, 
that I just think I was exploited by a culture that wanted me to be a controversialist. Yeah. Paid me for being that and then took me under the bus and I did what they wanted me to. I mean, it's got worse with the internet. It's much of, worse. Of, of editors or publishers just saying, we want you to take the most extreme position possible. This book isn't a misery memoir. No. Although you have plenty to be miserable about. It's very, very honest accounts of your past life and then this disease coming over you. Ed, how does the disease progress? Well, so the word that's most commonly used is inexorable for Huntington's disease. It comes on and progresses very, very slowly to the extent that the first symptoms are almost always unnoticed by the person who's experiencing them. So it's things like subtle personality change, loss of ability to concentrate or focus on more than one task at once, uh, a bit of unsteadiness, a bit of twitchiness, flicking of the fingers while you walk. From that point where things are starting to accumulate, it's often 10 or 15 years before a neurologist like me uh, is able to say for certain that that person has Huntington's disease. But surely with genetic testing now, you can just test to see if people have the... Well, yeah, so, but the thing is, in that situation, when the symptoms are very mild, it can be having a significant impact on someone's life. And things like anxiety and depression are very common in early um, or sort of prodromal HD. So they can be having a big impact. But as a neurologist, I have to say, well, a lot of people who don't have the HD mutation have symptoms like that, you know, as time goes on people often become a bit more irritable a bit less focused and a bit depressed so even if i know that someone has the hd mutation it can actually be very difficult to know for sure whether that's due to huntington's or whether they would have been like that anyway in their their late 40s or whatever so um but as, as symptoms accumulate a picture gradually emerges and then um you know, once the diagnosis is made officially, there's a significant degree of disability from very early on because it changes the most fundamental things about a person. And as you say, it's not so much the fidgetiness, although that's often more obvious. It's things like not being able to concentrate enough to sustain a job, having a a personality that's changed such that every conversation in your house becomes an argument and your partner is essentially arguing with a genetic mutation which is not an argument that anyone can win life becomes incredibly challenging and then it stays that way but getting worse for a further 20 25 years with accumulating disability inexorable charlotte you make the point in your book that it's not that the uh the disease the mutation it's not like you say forgetting yourself but it's not that people close to you people you love stop meaning anything to you. It's not like uh, dementia or Alzheimer's where you just you can forget the face of the, the man you've been living with for 50 years or whatever. No, forget- it, I've always recognised right, the, pe- the people in my life uh, and recognised them deeply involved with my children's life. So they've become a kind of recognisable anchor. Anna is a... 17 now, and she comes back and we uh, have a very deep connection. I don't know whether that's unique uh, and unusual with HD or uh, normal 
middle-aged team. But yeah, that's quite typical, actually. And as you say, Nick, it's a, it is a form of dementia, but it's not the sort of forgetting dementia yeah. of Alzheimer's disease. So people remember and recognize everyone and they still love the people that they loved. But HD changes your personality and your behavior in a way that it that that all of those interactions are um, just much more difficult, much more challenging. And of course, and then it sort of slows down the thinking and makes the speech and the movement difficult so that everything is just 100 times harder. When you've been diagnosed, Charlotte, you decided to have another child after knowing you had that. What made you think? What made you think that? I didn't want my daughter to be alone. Hmm. So the idea of Anna in this world without any sibling to support her and me going mad would just been a terrible thing to kind of saddle her with. Yes. Having done my son, he's just been an emotional ally for all of us. So I don't regret that. Sometimes I think, as I, what I'm scared of what's going to happen to them, of course. Yes. I just also think when he's kind of dancing around when he comes back from school and engage with my family... Even though the family has been kind of remade by this illness. Yes. But I never regret having done. Looking back on your life, can you see symptoms of the disease before you knew you had it in parts of your behaviour? I can, yes. I had I had a period before I was on any kind of proper medication when I was literally bad. Impossible to deal with depression. Yeah. Suicidal, angry. I used to just punch the wall. Punch my husband and just lie there in a puddle of despair. And then follow him up the road, berating him. So these are horrible things to remember. Mm. Eventually, we realised what medication could help with all of that. The suicidal stuff, I felt bolstered by new meds we sorted out. But it taken ages because I saw sort of various Holly Street psychiatrists yes. before finding Ed. Mm. And they all ended up misdiagnosing me. Yeah. And I'm I'm free. Yeah. (laughs) I thought I had... If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. 
there are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. ADHD, of course, regained me Britain. That was literally the worst thing could have happened. Well, I mean, Ed, this must be a problem you come across quite a lot. Because this disease, it's... Let's just get some basic facts here. How common is it in the population? Uh, It's pretty rare. It's about one in 100,000. You can imagine people with the mutation and their behaviour, as Charlotte described, they'd go to a GP, they go to a psychiatrist, and they would say, oh, well, yeah, that's ADHD or, you know. Yeah, uh, it happens all the time, especially when when there's no known family history. And and Charlotte's story is quite typical, uh, unfortunately, because there's often a multi-generation story of stigma, denial, pretending the disease doesn't exist, locking people away, pacts of silence, and then people find out, as Charlotte did, when someone becomes ill, uh, and then it emerges that people have known all along. So, um, you know, um, as a result of that, we, we do meet quite a lot of people and they present to their GP with difficulty walking or depression, anxiety, and a bit fidgety. And it can often take five or six years, multiple neurologists and psychiatrists visit, scans, blood tests, when actually a single genetic test could have made the diagnosis right at the beginning if people had, had, had been a bit more sort of open or open-minded. Yeah. So the, the kind of shame and the suppression over the generations yeah. doesn't just affect families, it's affected the medical profession, the psychiatric oh, profession, because it's yeah. just not on people's radar. Well, but the thing is, most psychiatrists, even not just neurologists, but psychiatrists, will 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 sit in front of a patient who's depressed and anxious and, and notice that they're fidgeting and think, I'm aware of this condition, Huntington's career, they may think of it as. I should probably be thinking about that. But because of the stigma attached to it, even clinicians will go right around the houses and that's why they'll to, do oh, all sorry, of these to avoid, to to avoid, avoid giving that mentioning it or, or or referring for the genetic test they'd much rather test for something that's a hundred times rarer like a copper deficiency or something yeah. than actually bite the bullet mention the name and do the genetic test things are improving but we've a long way to go so did you find that did you find psychiatrists doctors Wanted to say you had every problem except the one you had. Uh, yeah, so they sort of diagnosed me instead of allowing me to diagnose myself, which uh, just ended up going down a lot of wrong directions. This book, why did you want to write it? And who were who you hoping to address with it? I think uh, I wanted to write it to create something that would last longer than me. I think also my children are so thrilled and delighted by it. It feels like it's addressed to them as well. You you end, you describe your depression and, uh, as Ed was saying, the inexorable monotony of this marching on and on and on. Like, but you end by talking about finding some hope in what you call radical empathy. Can you explain that? I think uh, I always used to enjoy having parties, didn't I? And oh, yeah. The party scene in my house has been slightly adaptive. 
with uh, people who I can see one-on-one. Radical empathy was an idea from my feminist times days. It was uh, also Kate Tempest talks a lot about Yeah, uh, and, sorry, sorry, what does radical empathy mean? It's so hard to explain. What do you think? Oh, I don't know. No. What do you <laughs> Just think? Just the doctor. Um, yeah, I think, and this is weird about Charlotte, so classically Huntington's disease takes someone with great empathy and turns them into someone who's very self-centred. And weirdly, Charlotte's had exactly the reverse journey. And, and when we first met, we spent as much time me answering questions that Charlotte was asking me about my life as the other way around, which is not at all what I'd expected from reading her stuff, you know, in The Guardian and so on. It's weird because you think about it philosophically as radical empathy, but it's also a, a journey that you've been on. And I think it's, I don't know whether it's the, it's the fact that you sort of had to accommodate to a degree of sort of loss of your own abilities and been a bit more reliant on other people, or whether it's that actually the, the sort of very vicious Charlotte that you portray in the 90s was all a bit of an act and the disease has kind of helped that to fade away. But I've always found you to be someone who's very um, surprisingly empathetic. I was going to ask you, Ed, but you, you answered the question in the book, why would a young doctor move into, choose as a specialist, an incurable disease? But you say in the book that Huntington's is the most curable incurable disease, which is why lots of people, you, people can see a way of tackling it, even if they don't know how to get there. Exactly. It, it feels like low-hanging fruit in a way because it's one of very few incurable brain diseases where we know for sure what the cause of it is in every single person, which is this genetic mutation. mutation. Unlike Alzheimer's. Exactly. And there's, right. a, there's a small fraction of people with Alzheimer's and Parkinson's who have a genetic mutation, but in many cases, understanding that hasn't really helped us to develop therapies yet for those conditions because most people's disease may be different. And Charlotte... Ed actually put you on a trial for a genetic therapy. Is that right? Yeah. How did that work for you and how is it working more generally, Ed? It was a really exhausting and intense experience where I felt like I was part of something bigger. Yeah. Which was uh, worthwhile in retrospect. Uh, Even though... They ended up not working. Explain. Yeah, so this was a drug called Tominersen, and it's a, a, a so-called gene silencing drug, essentially uh, a volume control knob for the um, for the cause of Huntington's disease. So it stops the brain from producing the protein that is the source of the problem. We had a, a really positive, probably the biggest piece of good news we've had in HD research in 2017, where we were able to show in a small number of people that we had successfully reduced production of the protein. Unfortunately, in March, the trial was stopped early because there was a suggestion that it wasn't going to work or that people treated at higher doses were actually doing a bit worse. So you said back back to square one? No, and that's the thing. So square one would be 1993, back to this is the gene, how do we intervene? I think we go back to 2017, which is, this is definitely the cause of HD. How do we, and we know that we can interfere, we can reduce it. How do we turn that into clinical success? All right. On that optimistic note, so faintly optimistic, you can barely hear it, but optimistic nonetheless. I'm going to have to end it here. 
you've been listening to The Bunker. You can hear episodes of The Bunker Monday through Friday uh, on your phone every day. There are bunker podcasts on everything, books, the end of the world, and now incurable diseases. Um, so that's another treat for you. Please subscribe. Give us a bit of money if you've got any spare on Patreon or give us a good review on your Google, Apple or Spotify podcast rating system. It all, it all helps us keep going. Charlotte, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Nice to see you again, Nick. And it's been exhausting, but worthwhile. And Ed too. Thank you very, very much. The Bunker Daily was presented by Nick Cohen. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Thank you.